He is a pastor. He is a church planter. In his earlier years, his life intersected with some surprising things, including the Ku Klux Klan. He's Rick Blythe. I am John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Pastor Rick, thanks very much for taking your time. I'm so glad that we can spend these few minutes together. It's a pleasure. So you're a, you're a lifelong minister of the gospel. You've been involved in raising up churches. You are a soul winner. You've had many experiences and adventures in ministry and a lot else besides. Mm. So let's mm. go back to the beginning of your journey. Where were you from? From where did you spring? From the little town of Piedmont, Alabama. Uh about 5,000 people, and it's surrounded by what we call in Piedmont mountains, and it is a beautiful place on the earth. And I grew up there. I was born in one of those houses that sit on the stilts and the dogs go under. All right. Unpainted, uh, very poor. Uh, I was to find out later that we were poor, not because we had to be, but my dad uh, was a carpenter, and he worked most of his life in Birmingham. And he lived in Birmingham and would come home on the weekends. And he lived in a nice apartment in Birmingham, and we lived in shanties. And I was born in a little place, a little suburb of Piedmont called Spring Garden, Alabama. And uh, I, I just... I, I didn't realize what I was living in in the beginning. What were you living in? Tell me a little bit more about that. What what was that that you found out later? You said, well, look at this life I've, I've found myself in. Well, we were very poor. Uh, when I was older, I had to pick cotton in order to earn my clothes for school mm. and shoes to wear. Where I went to school, uh, we got out two weeks for cotton picking. and The whole school let out. And uh, we were very upset when it came time, uh, uh, when it got cold, we had to start wearing shoes to school. Uh, uh, that is the neighborhood. That is the life that I was living in. And we were very poor, very poor. But somehow I didn't know it at the time. In fact, we used to sit around and talk about the poor people. <laughs> But it was a very meager existence. Uh, but I had a godly, godly mother who married the wrong man. Uh. And uh, how'd, but, you, how'd you wind up with him if he was the wrong man? How did, how did that happen? Well, her, her father was a uh, section foreman on the Seaboard Railroad. And uh, she had the privilege of riding the train uh, for free. And so she caught the train, and she would ride it home after shopping. And she looked over one day in a yard. She saw a bare-chested man cutting wood. And he was a very handsome man. And so she had a pretty hard life herself. She was wanting to get away. So she married him, not knowing that he was a philanderer. And uh, 
had a good work ethic. He did teach me that, but uh, she she caught him uh, cheating on her, mm. and uh, so I remember the incident. She tells me that she took me in one arm and my other brother who had just been born in an arm and she had a bag and she walked five miles to catch a bus and she went to her mother's and her mother said to her darling we tried to get you not to marry this man but you've made your bed now so you need to lay in it and she had to come back home Mm. You know, there are just so many things uh, that I remember. But one of them was that I would, we would wake up as children. We'd wake up and we'd hear a bam, bam, bam. And we would get up and we'd run into the room. And my, my dad would be drunk and he'd be shooting in the ceiling. And, of course, we were thinking that he was harming our mother. And so mother would get up and she would calm us down and then lay us back down and go to sleep and maybe be asleep an hour, and we would hear, bam, bam, bam. And so here we we rise again, screaming and yelling and running in there. And you can just imagine the the, the tension, the emotions, uh, thinking every hour your mother was going to be killed. One, one incident, my father uh, was late, because he would usually stop at a bar, and then he would come home drunk or near drunk. Anyway, she uh, the supper was late that night uh, because she had to reheat it, and when he sat down, it was cold. And I remember uh, he took a fork and he stuck it in my mother's leg all the way to the bone. And, of course, all of us kids are viewing this. But in one incident... I remember she had uh, she wanted to surprise us, so she prepared uh, a pizza, and we never heard of a pizza, right? Sure. And she made it from Chef Boy or the uh, Chef Boy or the O D or yeah, something sure, like that. Yeah, sure. And uh, I can't remember how you pronounce it, but anyway, it was from a box, and it had this uh, cheese that uh, it just stunk. So he came home, and uh, she showed him the surprise. And he got so angry, he said, don't you ever fix any wop food in my house again. And uh, she got up crying, and, and he hit her so hard that she had Bell's palsy. Oh, the Sorry. Yeah. For the rest of her life. Oh, my. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. You were raised in a home where there was alcoholism, domestic violence, cruelty, cruelty. Many, I don't, I don't think the right word is most, but many people who are raised in that environment manifest the same dysfunctions or they're, they're, they're scarred in some way for the rest of their lives. Why didn't you turn out like your dad? Like I told you, my mother was a godly mother, and uh, I was—I was—I was very confused. 
But I remember years ago, Jehovah's Witness came to our house and they were studying the Bible. I didn't understand what they were saying, but I got a desire to know about God. Mm. Uh, And I was living with something in my mind because that time I told you that my mother went to visit her mother when we he was she was kicked out of the house. Sure. She took me to see my great grandmother who lived in the foot of the Appalachian Mountains. And she was sitting in a cane back chair there on this old house. And she she took me to show my great grandmother. And I remember my mother describing that she sat down beside her and she said, let me take that little one. And so she took me in her arms. <laughs> and she looked at me, and she looked at my mother, and she said, God has showed me this boy will be a preacher one day. Well, how about that? So I had that in the back of my mind. So you knew that. You, you were raised knowing I that. I was raised, but I didn't want to be a preacher. I want to be a scientist. Oh, all I right. love science. Yeah, and when I was growing up, my my hero was George Washington Carver. Sure, and my favorite president was Abraham Lincoln. Uh huh. But I couldn't express that because my dad was a, a, a Democrat Union thug, and he didn't want to mention of George Washington Carver or Lincoln. So, uh, it was a secret that I kept. So I had this in my in my heart, but I remember saying, when uh, after you mentioned this before, but uh, um, at some point I was I shot my father, and after that I joined the navy, and I remember saying, and I wasn't married, but I remember making a resolution. I said, by God's help, my wife would never live in the. H-E-L-L, that my mother lived in. Mm. And my children will never have to fear their father like I did. See, some people, that kind of upbringing will push them in that same direction. Others, it'll it'll be a bulwark or a barrier to prevent them from going there. And it seems to me like there were people praying for you. I want to ask you about your great-grandmother. Was she a, a woman of great faith? Was she a, a church-going woman? What, what was her story? I... They were all God-believing people, and I don't know a whole lot about my great-grandmother because she passed shortly after, but my mother Mm. was a praying woman. My mother, and I did have, actually, my dad's mother uh, had great influence on me, and she, I, I don't know what her relationship was to my father, except I believe she may have spoiled him, but she would talk to me and tell me to stay away from drugs and that God loves you. And my my yes, my grandmother or my my actually my dad's mother well, was a spiritual influence on me. Yeah. You mentioned something here. Somebody watching us has just said, "Well, wait a minute. Did, did he say he shot his father?" So. We need need to come back around there and flesh this out just a little bit because it's not the sort of thing you just drop and run. So we can understand some of the tension, some of the the, the stress in your home. Mm. 
but to go from that to shooting your dad. Mm. Walk me through that. What was that about? Well, this was many years later when uh, I was 17 years old. Okay. And I was the oldest of six. There were three boys and three girls. And this, this tension had escalated to a point. And my dad's mother, my grandmother had died, and uh, my grandfather had died, and my grandmother was dying. And uh, something snapped in him, and he began to drink very heavily, and I know he was on drugs. Uh, and I, I guess maybe even PCP, because mm. what happened was uh, he had drank himself to the point where he knew that he couldn't drive. You, you have to understand, we lived in a dry county, so he would have to drive to the Georgia line to get booze. Okay. Okay. I always said the only time the preachers and the bootleggers got together is to keep the county dry. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, uh, so he wanted my my brother uh, during this escalation. He had run. Uh, he had run away, and uh, he had actually gone for the police. And I was out doing something else, not knowing that there was this thing going on at the home. And. Anyway, he insisted that my 15-year-old sister, who hadn't, didn't have a driver's license, drive him to the Georgia line to get something to drink. Mother refused because she says she can't drive. She doesn't even have a driver's license. And so an argument ensued, and eventually it escalated to where my dad uh, actually was stomping and kicking my little sisters. Oh, yeah. He had just lost his mind. And uh, he had a, a twenty-five Magnum pistol with dumb, uh, dumb bullets in it. And he had, he took that pistol out, and my mother was sitting there, and she was holding my two-year-old baby sister in her arms. And so he took the gun out, and he put it down to her head, and he cocked the hammer up against her head. Your mother's head? My mother's head. And I had told earlier, I mean, the house was like an arsenal. There were guns and billy clubs, knives. It was an arsenal. So I told my sister to get me a gun because I knew that he was lost his mind. And uh, so I put a uh, gun, he had a gun up on the shift rope. And when he put the gun to my mother's head and pulled the trigger back, I came out with my gun and was going to shoot him. But my mother jumped up and jumped in front of him. And, and I went like this, went around her. And I shot him. And uh, you'll you'll excuse me, for, uh, because at that time he fell into a chair, and he was unconscious. And my 
13-year-old sister came out of the bedroom. I told them to go inside the bedroom and stay there. But she came out of the bedroom, and she was holding herself like this. And she said, Mama, I've been shot. And she said, No, honey, it's your dad. And she put her hands forth, and blood just started coming out. What I found out later, I didn't know, but what I found out later is it, it was a flesh wound. It went through him, clear through him, and hit her. Oh, and it struck her spleen. Well, when that happened, uh, uh, I just snapped. So I ran out of the house, and I, I don't know what I was thinking or what I was doing, but I ran out, and when I did, my head hit the low hanging of the porch. We had a concrete sidewalk, and my, my head hit that, and I I was unconscious. So... When I woke up, I was in the back seat. Uh, there were three of us in the back. My sister that had been shot was in the middle, and my mother was, you know, they had the bench seats. Yeah. Back then. And when I woke up, there was a rifle in my throat, and he was driving with a rifle pointed to my throat in the back seat. And uh, so... He said, if this child dies, he says, I'm going to kill you and the rest, everyone else. Oh. My my brother had gone for the police, so we were headed to the hospital, and uh, the police stopped us. It was the sheriff. And my dad took the gun like this and put it at the sheriff, and he says, this is a family matter. And if you know what's good for you, you'll let us go. And he let us go. He let you go. Let us go. Well, it's going to be interesting to find out how this uh, how this resolves. If it resolves, there's there's a, there's a lot more to share. We're going to get to ministry. We're going to get to church planting. We're going to get to the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, and a whole lot more before we're done. He's Pastor Rick Blythe. I'm John Bradshaw. This is our conversation. Back in just a moment with more. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, inviting you to join me for 500. Nine programs produced by It Is Written, taking you deep into the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We'll take you to Wittenberg, and to Belgium, to England, to Ireland, to Rome, to the Vatican City, and introduce you to the people who created the Reformation, who pushed the Reformation forward. We'll take you to sites all throughout Europe where the Reformers lived and in some cases died. We'll bring you back to the United States and take you to a little farm in upstate New York and show you how God spread the Reformation here. Don't miss 500. You can own the 500 series on DVD. Call us on 888-664-5573 or visit us online at itiswritten.shop. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV. They're watching their favorite It Is Written programs, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. 
Watch It Is Written TV for free anytime on Roku, Apple TV, and at itiswritten.tv. Welcome back to Conversations. My very special guest is Pastor Rick Blythe. And a moment ago, a moment ago, Rick, you were on your way to a hospital with a gun in your throat, Mm. a dad who'd been shot but was driving, a sister who'd been shot, and your mom. The police were just told to back off, and they did. They did. So what happened next? Well, uh, we proceeded, and we went to uh, a hospital in a little larger city, but the police had been notified. And so when we arrived there, there must have been four or five police cars. And the lights were just going and the sirens. And when we got there, they drug me and my dad out of the hospital, uh, out of the vehicle. And they took my sister onto the hospital. We were there, but they took her on into the hospital. And uh, they slammed us up against the police car, did the Macarena, you know, and uh, frisk us. And I remember going in, I said, you know, I don't care if you put me in jail, but please do not put me in the same cell Mm, with him. Sure. So uh, I I went to jail. I, I don't know, I was there two or three days. And I learned later that my dad had gotten out because he told them, that the family was just enjoying themselves, minding their own business. And I lost my mind, and I went in there and shot him and then shot her. Oh. But he was going to the hospital to be with my sister so that he could get her to have the story the way he told it. But they noticed that she was very uh, irritated, very nervous with him around. So... They said, well, you, Mr. Blythe, you need to leave now because uh, we have to treat your daughter. And she, uh, the nurse said to my uh, sister, uh, you act very uncomfortable around him. And then she told him the real story. Mm-hmm. So they put him back in jail. And uh, two days, I don't know, uh, my brother came and got me out of jail. And... Uh, uh, they both survived. The only thing they did to my dad was to put a restraining order on him. But we found out that he had another family in Birmingham, so he went to live with them. But so from that time, he was he was out of your life, or just much less in it. Well, you saw plenty more of him. I remember he would come back, and uh, he would come to the house, and he would shoot at the house. And sometimes in January, like this, we would sleep in the barn uh, because he was harassing us in the house, and uh, it, it was it was terrifying. Uh, even after I was in the ministry, he would call us at three o'clock in the morning and threaten my wife that he was going to kill our children. The police never did anything to stop this sort of behavior. He wasn't locked up. There was. Or he was just that kind of character, you couldn't stop him? I was in a bank uh, doing some business with my mother. And he said, oh, you're Donald Blythe's son. And I said, yes. He said, oh, he was a fine man. I've never met a finer man. And I said, well, he was, some people he was fine to, but not to his family. And he got angry with me. 
So there were a lot of people that just thought he was the yeah. best person in the world. And he was charming, and he did have a good personality. But uh, so uh, he had run-ins with the police, but he managed to stay out of trouble. Let's go back a little bit. A few moments ago, you told me that one of your personal heroes was George Washington Carver. That is right. Now, your dad didn't want to hear anything about Carver. No. Or Lincoln. Or Lincoln. So let's go down that road a little bit. What was it with your dad? Well, I remember in school, we, we learned about George Washington Carver. I learned about it in the fourth grade. And... uh and about Lincoln at the same time. And, it, and I just had a love for science. I always had a love for science. And here was a man, different color, but like me. Sure. Uh, who became a famous scientist. And I just, I, you know, I, my heart just went out to him. Uh, my, uh, but I couldn't tell my dad because... Uh, he, he he was not revered by my dad, mm. and Lincoln was a he was the founder of the Republican Party that freed the slaves, and he had no use for him. Your dad, uh, your dad. Well, this was Alabama. This was Alabama. This is a few decades ago now. That's right. And so your your dad uh, was racist. <laughs> Yeah, yes, he was. There's no question about it. But he didn't think he was. He did not believe he was. In fact, I, I, I could have brought it with me, but he had, his business card said, for God, race, and country. Hmm. He really, in his mind, uh, thought that he was performing the will of God. By doing what? By keeping the race pure. Where did these attitudes come from for your dad? Where did he get that? No one's born with that. It's developed along the way or inculcated into somebody. What were the, what were the uh, influences that... Uh, now, listen, he, he grew up in that, in that milieu. Right. Okay. So, so what was it about your dad that he was able to gravitate to those kinds of well, ideas? You, you have to understand that um, people really think that most of the Southern people are racist. But we weren't. We were as much afraid of the Klan as the adversaries, as the black folks. We were afraid of them, too. And so people didn't speak up. But I know Ginger's family, none of them were racist. They, uh, they never exhibited that. Even his own mother didn't feel that way. But my dad had a hard life, and he didn't have a good family life. Uh, because of his father. And I believe that my dad was looking for family. He was looking for community. He was looking for a place to belong and to be important. And uh, I really believe that a lot of folks were looking for scapegoats to blame their poverty on, to blame their issues on. They were looking for scapegoats. And they couldn't explain. Now, this is just my theory, but I, looking at my dad, I think he was bitter that uh, he, he, you know, he was somewhat moderately successful, but he blamed his position in life 
on someone else. And I think he lashed out at the black man. Uh, but he definitely, uh, he definitely, in the every sense of the word, was a racist. Now, he was a member of the Klan? He became early a member of the Klan. I remember as a boy, every Saturday, we had to wash the car. Okay, and I remember getting in the glove box, and I began to, at first time I knew it, and I began to read Klan correspondence. And there were letters from Chicago, letters from Indiana, there were letters from everywhere. He came to the place, and I, I actually uh, have a a plaque that uh, it shows he was the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan for the state of Alabama. You know, typically, this, typically that's a, uh, uh, a positive thing to say about somebody. It's quite the opposite, this one, but he yeah. rose up through the ranks. Yeah. So he held some, some position of importance in the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, he did. So how did you see this manifest on a daily basis? As your dad got about his business, was this, was, did this ooze out of his pores, or was it more something that he kept on the down low? Well, around me, well, let me give you an example uh, when he, he developed lung cancer and he was dying. And so people would come to visit him. And on his front door was a sign that said, clearly, whites only. Mm. I, when I would visit him, I, I would sit in his living room, and I, I you have a picture of this too, but he always had his robe, clan robe, hanging up in the bedroom. And I remember one time, he said to me, he said, son, why don't you join us? And I said, dad, I'm a minister. He said, oh, we have ministers. We have doctors. He said, we have judges. Mm. And uh, I said, well, yeah, I'm a seventh day. He said, oh, I forgot you're an old Jew. He said, uh, you're part of the problem. No way. He, he, he said that. The Catholics, the Jews... And the uh, blacks. Hated them all. Hated them all. And so I realized then that, you know, I was actually uh, a target for his hatred. What was society like, like in your hometown? Uh, Segregated schools? Segregated town? I was was actually... uh, in school, high school, when our school was first segregated, mm. the swimming pools were segregated. The everything was segregated, and uh, but I I can honestly say that I never had any animosity or any hatred. Uh, I, I I was ignorant, if if that makes sense. Yeah. Nazi Germany, you know, you had a certain amount of people there who, who hated Jews and wanted them exterminated. A lot, and, I, and I said that just very matter-of-factly, didn't I? Like, it's just an everyday thing. You had this mass of people who just kind of went along with things. Yeah. Do you think, I'm not trying to make excuses for anybody. Lord knows I'm not doing that. But do you think in the American South there was a bit of that? You had a system, and then a lot of people within that system who, for whatever reason, could have spoken, could have but felt powerless and, 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 and didn't speak. Is that what it was? Let me give you a real-life example of that. Uh, Ginger's parents were very religious, and they were not racist at all. In fact, uh, her mother had uh, a black maid 
her mother was a seamstress and a very good one. And so she worked all the time. And once a week she would have, her name was Magnolia. And she would come into the house and Mag, uh, she would say to Magnolia, uh, after she fixed the lunch, she'd say, sit down, have a, eat with us, Magnolia. And she would say, no, I, I can't do that. I know my place. And she said, well, nobody will see. Well, you know, we have no problem with it. She said, no, ma'am, but somebody look through that window and they mm-hmm. see this. Mm-hmm. You'd be in trouble. And she said, I don't want to get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. So this is a real live example that most people felt that way. But you it was a system, like you said. You were afraid. You didn't know. And for me growing up, I didn't hate anybody. I didn't hate anyone. And I, and I want to ask you why not. So so you're a, you're a white kid in the segregated South whose dad is a leader in the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, it was in your genes, man. You should have been as racist as the next guy. You, 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 I mean, if you understand what I mean, you ought to have been following your dad to clan meetings and, 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 I don't know, making crosses to burn on front lawns. But you weren't. And I'm just so fascinated why that this wasn't you. Later on when we grew up, my dad pointed his finger in my mother's face and said, I, I intended to have a clan family and because of you, not one joined and she said thank god mm, 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 thank god yeah i guess i guess that's true you have two parents and you're not you, you don't have to take after the one or the other well and the other thing is that i observed who he was and what he was and how he was to us and i said i loathe what he stood for and what he did he taught me what not to be i uh, i just said to myself if he treats us this way and he loves us, I never want to be like that. Some people will see a, an example of what their father is like. It jaundices their view of God because if this is the father you know, how can you know or trust that father? You never had that problem. Why was that? Because he was my father, my substitute father. Uh I always, I never could uh, verbalize it or explain it, but I just knew that my God was with me. Mm, mm, mm. I knew my God was with me. I just knew it. And uh, not saying that I didn't waver and that I didn't uh, turn left on the right road. You know, I'm not saying that. But somehow, deep inside, I always knew that God was there. And I believed in, I did not believe in chance. I believed in providence. I believed that things didn't just happen. They happened for a reason. And I, I don't know, it's just something in me. And I knew that what my heavenly father was was the opposite of what my earthly father was if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, sure. And just as well you had that. Seems to me that somewhere along the line there were people praying for you. Yes. Had to have been. And your mother gave you a wonderful example. Thank yes. God for that. Uh, my mother was always praying for me. My grandmother in the early years was praying for me. And uh, I I kept having this 
vision of my great-grandmother saying that I'd be a preacher one day. Mm. And it just haunted me, haunted me. And it wasn't what I wanted. But uh, when, after I shot my father, uh, I joined the Navy. And, uh, and mind you, my mother was a Sabbath keeper, a believer, didn't fully understand how to keep it and so forth. But I had become, I had read all the books of uh, the Worldwide Church of God, and I'd learned about the Sabbath. Uh, but because of all this, it was like I was running away. So I ran to the, I joined the Navy. Now, let me tell you how Providence works. I joined the Navy. I went through boot camp. I uh, learned electronics. I have the equivalent of an associate degree in electronics. And so I was able to get choice duty. So they sent me to the Naval Electronics Laboratory Center in San Diego, California. And so we were working on uh, covert laser communication between ships. And one day the project manager came in and he said, we're getting a new boss. Uh, and he says, I said, well, what is he like? And he said, well, he's a good man. He's smart. But he will refuses to work on Saturday, and he's a grass eater. <laughs> <laughs> so he turned out to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And he used to bring me into his office to do filing in the in a and I, would, I resented it because I said, I'm a trained electronics, and you're having me do filing. But he was giving me Bible studies the whole time I was mm, in there. Mm, mm, mm. Smart man. There's plenty more to hear, too, from Pastor Rick. God continues to be in his life today. We want to talk about church planting, ministry, and COVID-19. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about the study of the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious about God's Word also. Well, I want to share with you another way that you can dig deeper into the Word of God, and here it is. Itiswritten.study Go online to itiswritten.study and you can access the It Is Written Bible Study Guides. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will walk you through the Bible. It's going to be good for you, and it's the sort of thing that you will want to tell somebody else about so that they can dig deeper into the Word of God and come to know the things of the Bible intimately. As you get into the It Is Written online Bible study guides, you'll understand the prophecies of the Bible, the plan of salvation, and more. So don't forget, itiswritten.study. It is written dot study. If you enjoy coloring, then you are going to love the Buried Treasure Coloring Book from My Place with Jesus. The Buried Treasure Coloring Book has more than just pictures to color. You'll also enjoy activity pages, each accompanied by their very own audio story. Mr. Dixon came across a small, well-weeded rice patch out in the middle of a field. Get ahead of a rainy day or a relaxing evening as a family and order the Buried Treasure Coloring Book from It Is Written. 
Hello, I'm Dr. Wes Youngberg, and I've just written a book called Memory Makeover, How to Prevent Alzheimer's and Reverse Cognitive Decline. This book is in story form. It's case studies of individuals that I've worked with and my colleagues I've worked with where they've actually been able to stop cognitive decline and 80% of the time have been able to reverse aspects of cognitive decline. You want to know more about that? Get the book, Memory Makeover. Welcome back to Conversations, where my special guest is Pastor Rick Blythe. Rick, just a moment ago, you were in the Navy. Yes. And somebody was giving you Bible studies. Uh, did that progress? It did. Yeah? What did. happened? Well, uh, his name was Kirk Davies, and he asked me if I would like to go to an evangelistic series. Oh, fantastic. And he handed me a flyer. And I said, and I'm thinking in my mind, uh, I, I'm just not ready for this. I at, By this time, I was smoking and drinking, and uh, my wife was trying to get me to go to church, and she, <laughs> uh, I think she was about ready to leave me because I, I don't know, I because of everything that had happened in my life, I, I, I was just adrift. Is that, I was just adrift. So anyway... I said to him, I said, well, I'll ask my wife, and if she wants to go, we'll go, thinking she would never go because right. this is a Saturday thing, you know, a Sabbath thing. Yeah. So I go home, and I show it to her, <laughs> and the, the next meeting was loose marriage is an easy divorce. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so she said right away, Sure. And I'm thinking, I had no option then. That's right. So we ended up to go in, actually, uh, a lot of churches in San Diego. So we actually ended up going to two and a half series, and we were baptized at the end of the series. Fantastic. Now, when it came to Ginger's baptism, uh, she was balking a little bit. Well, it turns out that she was, there was no issue. It's just that she was afraid of water. She didn't know how to swim. Uh. So she was afraid to be baptized. I would, I thought she had never accepted, but she had said that I was so anxious to get you in church. I'd go on Wednesday if that's when we went. <laughs> of course, she ended up being the real rock and the one, uh, really, uh, Steadying me in the Lord. Thank God for that. God knew, what you, God knew what and who you needed. You found your way to ministry. So tell me about that, that little journey and uh, where you landed in ministry. Well, I knew that I was going to have problems with the Sabbath in the Navy. I had no problems when I was there. Who My boss was a Seventh-day Adventist. But and so they kept me there six months longer than uh, it's almost unheard of. But my next duty was to Guam. And uh, so I went to Guam, and I knew. But my pastor, Dr. Robert Stalnaker, came to our house, and he prayed with us. So I went to my uh, commander there, who was in charge, and uh, he told me that, 
Well, actually, I told him, I said, you have a problem. And he said, well, I have a problem? And I said, yes. And I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And he said, I, uh, I said, I won't work on Sabbath unless it's in a life emergency. And uh, so he sent me to the chaplain. And the chaplain, who was a Protestant, would not help me. Eventually, we had a change of uh, chaplains, and this was the Catholic chaplain, and he helped me, which is a it's interesting, isn't it? Very interesting. Yeah. Well, anyway, what happened was is that eventually I was taken before the commander, and I was standing for court martial, mm. and. Uh, he said, you have to work on Saturdays. And I said, I cannot. And he said, well, go on. I'll give you my decision. So he calls me back a little later, and he tells me that we're going to put you in supply. And supply was down in the basement. And I said, oh, no, this is a Joseph experience. Mm-hmm. They put me in the catacombs. And so I went down there. But I was able to uh, turn that whole supply system around and one day, the uh, petty officer came to me, and he put down some boots and supplies, and he said, I said, what is this? And he said, well, this is your part of our trip. And I said, well, I won't be partaking of it. It was, <laughs> uh, what do you put, pilfering? Oh, yeah, sure. It was pilfering. Yeah. And so I never said anything. Never turned anybody in. But from then on, <laughs> it was amazing. The pilfering stopped. And what happened was, as I saved that div- our division, our area, I saved $5,000 in a quarter. And the same commander who was going to court-martial, court-martial me brought me before him and gave me a commendation. And a promotion. So I was Joseph who came up. No, don't don't get me no, wrong. No, no, I'm not Camaro, but I it was a Joseph comparison. experience. Sure, it was. And I came up, and they they promoted me. And uh, to make a long story short, they brought me in, and they said, uh, "We will give you another promotion and guarantee your Sabbaths off if you will sign up for another four years." And did and, you? Well. What was taking place otherwise, Ginger and I were, we always say that we were uncle's uh, missionaries at Uncle Sam's expense because we had become very involved in the Agania Heights Church uh-huh. on Guam. And the pastor who helped us asked me to preach for him. And so I did preach for him. But look, you've got to understand, Ginger and I both are very shy people. I know it's hard to believe. It's, it's hard to believe, yeah. But we, but we are. And uh, so I did it with knees shaking. And after I preached the sermon, he came to my house with a box of catalogs. And he said, I'm writing a tele- telegram to uh, recommend you to study of ministry uh, to the college of your choice. And, right, and I... I had kind of said to the Lord, well, if there's a place near where I grew up, because we hadn't been able to spend much time with our family, I would consider it. So the first 
the first catalog on top was Southern Missionary College, Collegedale, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Ginger came down the next morning. And I said, do you want to go to Southern to study for the ministry? She said, she had already told me, you're a grown man, you need to work. And uh, But she said, sure, let's go. We sent our furniture 10,000 miles and stored them here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Had no job, hadn't been accepted, had no apartment, had no clue. But we said, we're going to do this. And the very day that we found an apartment, I got a job at Southern and was accepted. Uh, the uh, extension on our storage ended the very day, and we had our furniture the next day. Yeah, yeah, God's hand's been all over that, hasn't it? Yeah, that's a providence that I was That's right, you. that's providence. So you've been involved in pastoring churches. Church planting. You, you, you relatively recently planted a church in your, in your childhood hometown. Let's, let's take a couple of minutes and talk about that. Well, with a group here at Tunnel Hill, Georgia, we raised up a church when I was in college. Then I raised up a church at Westside, and you've done Being meetings there. there. Yeah, meetings I, great, I raised great congregation. up out of uh, Indiana. And then I had a dream 40 years ago. Lord, I want to raise up a church in my hometown. And I knew I couldn't do it through the regular system. So I took a sabbatical, moved in with my mother, and started meeting in our living room. And finally we outgrew that. We rented an old parts store. We outgrew that. We we rented a, a building across the road for fellowship. And then we saw a piece of land for sale. We rented that. Uh, we bought that, and we built the first stage, the fellowship hall. And then uh, we built the sanctuary on it. And the very Sabbath that we had paid it completely off. Amen. Beautiful church. We had paid it completely off, and the the Sabbath of the mortgage burning. That Wednesday, the 2011 tornado came through and completely destroyed it. Mm. But by God's grace, we were able to rebuild that church. And by November, we were back in our building, prettier and more beautiful than ever, with a full concrete basement as a storm shelter. Yeah, beautiful. And... uh, and so God, and it was a, in a county where we had no work before. So that was the third one. But I, I wanted to move back to my hometown. And people said, you're crazy. There, there's no church there. And I said, there will be. There will be. And there you've will. been praying about that for 40 years. 40 years. Isn't it incredible to see God work that out? And it was miracle after miracle. And, uh, and of course, Desmond Doss was the stepson of my, uh, who's now the pastor, and he became uh, interested in it. So Desmond actually was a charter member of our church and financially helped us to set it up. Well, how wonderful. And I have a whole other story about my connection to Desmond. (laughs) I want to ask you about this, though. Uh, The pandemic has been sweeping through and causing all kinds of damage, and you got it. 
you got you got you got COVID nineteen. Now right. I know I know you were sick. We were praying for you, man. We were praying for you. Here it is written. So yeah. explain the, the, describe the that experience. Of, at the end of June and July, I uh, I got COVID, and uh, I ended up in the hospital in and out for three weeks. Uh, I was very sick, and uh, just before they they put me on a ventilator, they gave me remdesivir and convalescent plasma, and then the next day, I, I just turned around. Mm. But, uh, you know, I said, Lord, if this is my time to go, just let me be the best witness I can. I said, Lord, and and so I would joke with the doctors and I'd say, they'd say, is there anything you need? I said, I need my COVID water. Well, I was drinking tonic water, which has quinine in it. Sure. Right? Yeah. And I said, I wanted my COVID water. And this one aide, she said, I won't be here tomorrow. Well, the, she showed up the next day. And I said, why are you here? And she says, because you just cheer me up. Fantastic. <laughs> she said, here you are on the deathbed. But I asked God, I said, God, just give me a positive spirit and, and let me be a witness. Uh, if, if this is my time to go, let me go out with a laugh. Okay? So, so you realized in the middle of this thing, it, it could have taken your life. Oh, I, I really thought I was there. I really thought I was there. And I said, Lord, if it's your will, let me go out smiling. <laughs> and, uh, but yes, yes, it's my biggest concern was for my family, my sure. wife and my children. But, uh, yes, it, it was a, it was a terrible thing. Mm. Well, you, you, you're doing, you, you're doing great now. Oh, yes. God brought me back, uh, because he has something in mind for me. No question. Could, you, you may have other churches to plant. Do we have time for me to read my verse? Absolutely. There's a verse here that just, it's kind of the uh, theme of my life. And it comes from Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. Then I said, Ah, oh Lord, God, behold, I cannot speak, for I'm a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go that where I shall send thee. And whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand. He touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. That's right. And then, just this one other, in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Yeah, it's a beautiful verse. And the New King James says, to give you hope for your future. Mm, mm, mm. This is what I believe is God's direction. But it's not only hope for you and me, but it's hope for everyone that's watching. That's right. 
That's right. God's given us hope, hasn't he? We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But in Jesus, we've got it. Thank God. Let me ask you this. You've got it. You've, you've, you can look back over a lot in your life. Your life, your life, it's a miracle your life didn't go in a whole different direction, but instead God had his hand on you, moved you into ministry, you've influenced hundreds and thousands and thousands of people, you've raised up churches, you're, you're not done yet. What does Jesus mean to you? You know, I also served as a missionary to the Marshall Islands, and uh, I learned there in the mission field, that there are folks there that don't have a lot, and they're they're searching for Jesus. They're searching for something other than what's on this earth. Uh, Jesus means everything to me. He means everything. I, I remember, I told you one time, I said, John, I knew you when you were a nobody. Yeah, and I'm, you, I'm still a nobody. And, and you said, I'm still a nobody. <laughs> and that, I said that to say this, that in this world, we're all nobodies. That's right. But we are special. We are special, all of us in Jesus. We are special in his sight. And we need to let everyone know that it doesn't matter where they come from, the cotton fields of Alabama or the slums of New York, they are special. Jesus. That's right. Jesus means all the world to me. Pastor Rick Blythe, thank you. It, it, this has been a real joy. Thanks. You've been such a blessing. I appreciate it. It's been my joy, my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you. I know you've been blessed. Thank you for taking your time. He is Pastor Rick Blythe, and I am John Bradshaw. And this has been our conversation. 